and welcome to Tour Guide Tell All. Uh, we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides here to share with you some of the more interesting and scandalous sides of American history. And this is our first episode of 2021. You'll be listening to this in the new year, fingers crossed, if everything goes well. We're actually recording this literally on New Year's Eve day. So it's the last few hours of 2020, good riddance. But you will have this in your ears in a brand new year, hopefully full of hope and joy. So um, I'm so excited. I'm Becca. I'm Rebecca. And we're the the Rebeccas. Rebeccas. And we are talking about a topic that I actually really love, which is presidential inaugurations. I am like such a, a buff or nerd about like American politics and civics. And I sort of love the pomp and circumstance that can surround our like political system. Uh, it's why I love talking about things like political conventions and elections uh, and sort of the follow up to all of that is the inauguration. And like so many things in American history, it has really changed. What we think and know of as an inauguration today in the 21st century is very different from what has existed in the past. So our goal today is hopefully going to be to sort of take you through a bit about what inauguration is, uh, some of the fun, weird things that have happened in the past. And then by the time you listen to this, we will have potentially probably had an inauguration, (laughs) Um, you know, COVID and all things notwithstanding. Uh, Yes. So two disclaimers as we kind of dig in here. The first is that obviously we're recording, you're hearing this and the inauguration has happened. Like we're going to drop this uh, the day after the inauguration in 2021, but obviously we don't do this uh, on the day of, we record it in advance. So for us, the inauguration has not happened yet. So if there's some like past, present tense disagreement there, that's perhaps why. And the other Uh, The other disclaimer I want to drop is that uh, the person getting inaugurated on January 20th, 2021, Joseph Biden Jr., uh, will be the 46th president of the United States, but only the 45th person to be president of the United States. Grover Cleveland had two non-consecutive terms, 22 and 24, and it's terrible and it's awful and we hate it, but that's speak reason. for yourself. I love that there was one person in our history <laughs> who was president and then wasn't and then was like, you know what, I'm going to try for it again. And one. And I'm I know it's, it's, that's, a, that's a, a very, very surface level talk about Cleveland and his presidencies. But it just goes to show that as much assumption as we make about how presidential terms work and how American presidents typically exist, the Constitution allows for non-consecutive terms. Sure, sure, sure. I'm not saying he shouldn't or that it's bad that he did. It's just the numbers are messed <laughs> up and I haven't ordered mine and it's just, it bothers me. That I understand. <laughs> this though, if you have ever done any bar trivia, you probably know about Grover Cleveland. So if not, now you know for the future for your pub yes. trivia teams. Yes. So let's dig in. Inauguration. This is exciting. Uh, by the time you hear this, there will have been 59 planned inaugurations since 1789. Uh, 59. There have been nine vice presidents who have succeeded to the presidency in unplanned ceremonies. Uh, and we'll talk more in depth about them in a bit, but they are John Tyler, Millard Fillmore, Andrew Johnson, Teddy Roosevelt, Chester Arthur, Calvin Coolidge, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, and Gerald Ford. 
So we'll talk about them now. And when we're talking unplanned ceremonies, we're typically talking about the death of a president, whether it's assassination or natural death. But when all of a sudden you have a vice president ascending to the presidency without the election process. And resignation, I forgot. And the one resignation. (laughs) Oh, Nixon. Which was kind of planned, but kind of, they knew it was going to happen, but it wasn't like planned, planned. Constitutionally, the only requirement for a presidential inauguration is that the president recite the oath that's in the constitution. They literally have it written down in the constitution and presumably someone has to witness it. That is literally it. There does not have to be a speech. There does not have to be someone giving him the oath. There does not have to be a ceremony, nothing. He literally has to recite the oath on the right day and it's like magic. He becomes, he, she, it becomes president of the United States. So that's the really only prescription in the constitution. All the like pomp and circumstance that goes along with a presidential inauguration, we have sort of created over time, but it is not necessary or constitutionally required, I should say. Do you want to talk about George Washington and the Bible? Yeah, so um, most presidents, not all, but most presidents have taken the oath of office on a Bible, and it starts with George Washington, like so many things in our in our tradition start with George Washington. And, you know, there was really, again, the Constitution doesn't say that you have to swear the oath on a Bible or anything like that. So as they're preparing for this very first inauguration, there's sort of this idea of, okay, So you're going to take this oath. How do we make this serious? How do we, this is the first time we've had this like elected democratic president. It's a whole new thing. And uh, Robert Livingston sort of goes, wait a second, we're, we're going to need to have something official here, like a Bible. We need, we really need you to put your hand on something official. You know, if you're going to swear an oath, there needs to be some stakes. And so the, uh, this might be a little apocryphal, but the, the story sort of goes that on that day, Livingston's kind of going, hey, where's the Bible? And George Washington didn't bring one. Uh, But George Washington was a Mason, a Freemason. And so they went to the Masonic Lodge and took the Bible there. And that was then the Bible that has been used many times since. And if you've ever seen the George Washington Bible, it's, it's a monster. It's a beast. It's humongous. So this was not like he had planned and brought his little like daily travel Bible. They took this big Masonic Bible. Um, There is also not great contemporary accounts of what happened or reliable accounts, I should say, but most people, People would write later that Washington leaned down and kissed the Bible reverently and said, so help me God. And then Livingston replied, it is done after the oath was taken. So this is sort of the typical account that people wrote after the fact, but we don't really have a good newspaper account or a good eyewitness account from the time. So like many things with Washington's legacy, it's hard to know exactly what actually happened in that regard. Skeptical. I'm skeptical of that. I don't know. It just seems the kissing thing seems a little out of character for him. <laughs> I mean, I didn't know the man, but that just, I don't know, seems a little, that rubs me the wrong way. Um, and so now it's a big deal. What Bible is the president going to get sworn in on? Is it their family Bible? Is it the Washington Bible? Is it the whoever's Bible? Um, but yes, it is. Now they have a big deal. And so far, the presidents of the United States have been Christians That does not always have to be the case. If there is ever a Jewish or a Muslim president, they can get sworn in on whatever book is holy to them. So it does not have to be the Bible. And we'll just, I'll take a moment to shout out Theodore Roosevelt for his first inauguration, did not swear uh, on a Bible. John Quincy Adams, my man, uh, used a book of law. 
kind of basically yeah, said, I can't actually pull the Constitution out and put my hand on it because that would be bad for the Constitution paper. But it was to represent sort of swearing the oath on the Constitution, which I think has a really nice kind of symbolism to it. So um, again, uh, you don't have to put your hand on a Bible. And certainly in the future, if we have presidents from varying faiths or, or not at all, there are definitely options out there. The oath of office is usually administered by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, although, it, again, not constitutionally required. Fifteen Chief Justices have done it. Washington's first two, because we're still getting our feet wet with this whole inauguration business. Uh, his first was done by the New York, a New York State judge, Robert Livingston. Becca already mentioned him. His second was done by Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, William Cushing. And after that, every other planned inauguration has been administered by the Chief Justice up until present moment. There is one man in American history, Becca, who has both taken and administered the oath of office. That man is William Howard Taft, having served both as President of the United States and later as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and having been on the Supreme Court long enough to administer the oath. So William Howard Taft is so special and unique in our history, and that's just one of the other reasons. I think it is very unlikely that any other person will have that claim. The idea now of putting a former president on the Supreme Court, I think, would be a no-go in today's political environment. So Taft is very, once again, very unique. Taft is very unique for many reasons. But it is one of the little job perks of being Chief Justice is you get to administer the oath, which is kind of cool. Super, yeah. I would imagine it's easier on the Chief Justice's side of things than it is on the President's side of things. (laughs) Although we have had... If you uh, if you pay attention to inaugurations, we've had some chief justices who have stumbled on the wording, who have sometimes flipped words or skipped words. So, you know, they maybe get a little complacent if they've done it too long. Yeah, John Roberts did that with one of Obama's. I think it was the second one. Uh, They flubbed it a little bit in the public ceremony and they had to go back the next day to the White House and be like, let's make this official. Okay. (laughs) No, no pressure if one of you listening becomes chief justice, but get it right. Right. Uh, For unplanned inaugurations, obviously, that's a little bit more unplanned. (laughs) Uh, It's a little bit more catch as catch can. Basically, it is the oath is administered by whatever federal judge is closest. (laughs) Usually, there is a private swearing in ceremony immediately sort of by necessity. And then there'll be some kind of public ceremony later that can depend on the manner of the death of the previous president. That's a little bit, they try to be sensitive about that. Teddy Roosevelt, and this is one of my absolute favorite Teddy Roosevelt stories. So Teddy Roosevelt and Calvin Coolidge, who's Harding's vice president, were both on vacation. Both Harding and McKinley die in the summertime. So they're both on like vacation. No one's in DC in the summer. No, no one wants to be in DC in the summer. And Teddy Roosevelt is... Like, so typically Teddy about this, he has hauled his family to Mount Marcy, which is the highest peak in New York State. And they're like climbing a mountain, like in the middle of August, because this is what you want to do when you have like little teeny kids, I guess. I don't know. And McKinley, unlike Lincoln, like McKinley is shot. And then there's like a period of time where he's very ill and then he dies. So they know that it's happening and they have to go find Teddy. And this is 1901. There are no... They can't tweet at him. Like, they don't have a satellite phone. So they have to, like, troop up Mount Marcy to go get him. And... 
they get a telegram that says that the McKinley's fading, like you need to get Teddy to a judge because again, there are not judges on the top of Mount Marcy. And so there's this great story at like two o'clock in the morning, Teddy Roosevelt, like riding hell for leather down the mountain. And apparently somebody, because historians are an infinite and wonderful variety of people, someone has plotted out, given where he started and how fast he was going, where exactly Teddy Roosevelt was at the moment he became the president of the United States. And they have put a marker there. Wow. He gets to the bottom or wherever, and they basically have to go find a federal judge and wake them up and be like, hi, (laughs) things are bad. You need to swear in this man is president now. (laughs) Calvin Coolidge was on vacation in, he's from Massachusetts, but his father at this time lived in rural Vermont, which is basically all of Vermont in 1923. And they didn't have a phone because again, 1923. And so you would think the, I don't know, vice president of the United States goes on vacation and that someone would have some form of communication. Evidently not. They have, someone has to call the general store in the middle of this random town in Vermont and wait for someone to pick up and then inform them that, hey, you need to go over to the Coolidge house and wake him up because Calvin's just become president. And luckily for Calvin Coolidge, the nearest federal judge uh, was in the next bedroom over. His father was not actually a federal judge. He was a justice of the peace, but they can legally administer the oath. And so Calvin Coolidge is the only person who was sworn in by his father to be president. Only person sworn in by a family member, I would say, right? Yes. No siblings. No. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's fascinating. Only one woman to date has administered the presidential oath of office. Sarah T. Hughes is a, or was a district court judge for the Northern District of Texas. Literally, she was the closest judge to uh, Love Field in Dallas when President Kennedy died. And so they, she swore in Lyndon Johnson on the plane on the tarmac before he took off. Uh, And then she got off the plane and went back to doing whatever it was she does. And you've all seen that photo of Johnson with Jackie looking shell-shocked and the woman in the foreground that you can't really see, that's Sarah Hughes. For the vice presidents, you'll be happy to know, it's much more relaxed. They're not sworn in in the big ceremony, like the one that we see outdoors. Apparently, number two is not important enough. They do it indoors a little later. And since 1981, the vice president has been sworn in by a associate justice. It doesn't matter which one. It's been different ones. I assume they draw straws or something, right? <laughs> it has tended to be someone who is sympathetic to the new administration politically. For example, wow. in 2017, Vice President Pence was sworn in by Clarence Thomas. In 2013, Vice President Biden was sworn in by Sonia Sotomayor. RBG actually swore in Al Gore in 1997, which I love. Uh, before 81, it's been whoever. Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill swore in Walter Mondale in 1977. For a while, it was the Senate pro tem. But for a very long time, and this just blows my mind, it was the outgoing vice president who would swear in his replacement. It's a little awkward. Well, the first thing that I thought of. Also, what happens if you're the vice president again? Right. What, or what happens <laughs> if you like lose? I don't know. Like the thing that I was thinking was, remember a few months ago, we talked about Ulysses S. Grant gets rid of his vice president in the middle of his term because Shiler Colfax was corrupt. And his last act as being vice president was to swear in the new guy. And I feel like that's just super awkward. 
Yeah. Someone else apparently has realized that. And so they like source it out to somebody else. <laughs> but it just, once again, an illustration of how until relatively recently, I think vice presidents have been thought truly very little of. Very much the afterthought of the American political system. And that's the thing about vice presidents that always kind of floors me. Like, unless you're a super history nerd like we are, like, can you name a vice president that was not in your lifetime? Most people probably can't. I mean, other than like John Adams, maybe. And I'll be I'll be honest. I cannot name all the vice presidents chronologically. I can name the presidents, but I cannot do the vice president. I can't do the vice president. And there are definitely times where I'm like, I think. If you put me on the spot, I could maybe come up with a name of most vice presidents, but there are definitely some that have left my mm-hmm. mind. Yep, gone into like, other things. Between 1880 and 19, like 10, especially. So inaugurations take place. Typically, hmm. we think of them, I think, in the modern day in January, right? Like this episode's going to drop in January and you'll have seen the inauguration. But that is not the original date. The original date was March 4th because that's when the federal government began operations under the Constitution. But to make this more complicated, our first president, George Washington, wasn't sworn in uh, for the first time on March 4th. He was sworn in on April 30th, 1789. So, you know, we don't ever do anything the same way in the U.S. Constitution. (laughs) <laughs> in 1933, so it's been March 4th for actually longer than it has not been March 4th. If you look back and think about big inaugurations, like I think about Lincoln's second inauguration or or these kind of big moments, um, a lot of them took place in March, not in January, which is why when you look at the pictures, especially from the back half of the 19th century, it's not snowy and icy. It's March. Right. It's kind of rainy and gross. Yeah. And the reason it was March was because of the federal budget, but also like it kind of made some sense. They didn't have train travel when the Constitution was written. You had to travel like by foot or horseback or carriage. Yeah, which was slow. So the election day is is federally prescribed. It is the Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And then you get the holidays and then they don't certify the election until the beginning of January. Like that that's a constitutional thing. And so then they got to pack up their whole house, like they're moving. So it makes some sense that you'd give them a little bit of time to do that. Today, you know, starting in the 1920s and 30s, people start to say, hey, wait a second, this is a long time. Like this is four months to have like a president in waiting. And that's not really good. No. And it's a long time for a lame duck president. It is. It's a long time, like waiting to be the boss. And it's a long time for foreign governments to wonder who do they deal with? And, you know, all kinds of things. So the they're going to move it by constitutional amendment. The 22nd Amendment to the Constitution actually moves inauguration back to January 20th. And even with that move, we are still among the, like, Western nations. We are still among the longest interregnums uh, in between one administration and another. Like, in France and Britain, it's the same week. Just move out. Bye. And honestly, we know that they can move the president out of the White House in a single day. That's what they do on Inauguration Day is at noon, everything's, they have it all prepped out. It's sort of fascinating, I think, in a 21st century perspective to kind of even question, like, do we need from early November to January 20th anymore for a transition? I don't think so. With technology the way it is. I mean, I feel like you need a couple of days, make sure the vote is counted and make sure all that happens. I mean, and you have to certify the election. Sure. And I, I, you, 
but it seems like a really long. And he also, he needs time to, the, or she at some point, hopefully in the future, needs time to select their cabinet and sort of make important transition decisions. But I feel like a month at best is where we're at. And Becca's correct. One of the coolest things I think about inauguration, I have never been to actually see one in person. Really? Fascinating. No, I've never been. Too crowded. Not for me. What (laughs) I would like to see is the moving out of the White House. So the way that this happens at exactly noon when the legal transfer of power takes place, there is a small army of staff that basically fans out across the White House. They literally wrap up and pack up all the stuff from the old president's house and cabinet. Like all the personal items are going to go to wherever address they're moving next. All their like important papers and official documents, those are going to get packed up for like archive or whatever. And at the same time, they unpack all the stuff from the new president. So the idea is that when the new president shows up after the parade, which we'll talk about in a minute, they just walk right in and they're ready to hit the ground running. So this all happens like that day. It takes about an hour or so. So I feel like if the White House staff can do that, our whole government could transition in a few weeks as opposed to a couple months. That's just my soapbox. Yeah, no, I'm totally with you. <laughs> okay, Rebecca, what happens though? We we now say that it's going to be January 20th. What if January 20th is a Sunday? Oh my goodness, the Sunday problem. So sometimes the inauguration day happens on a Sunday and it throws everything into confusion. Whether the inauguration took place on March 4th or January 20th, this has happened seven times, most recently in 1985 and 2013. And usually the president has a smaller private ceremony on the Sunday and then the big public celebrations the next day. That's what Reagan did in 85. That's what Obama did in 2013. But three times in our history, that's not how things have worked. In 1877, uh, Rutherford B. Hayes was secretly sworn in on March 3rd, which is early. So not really legal. We're definitely going to do the 1876 election in 2021. So for insanity reasons, they swore him in a day early secretly. Great. In 1821, they literally didn't know what to do. So they just had a vacancy for 24 hours. So we had no president for a whole day. Good times. But 1849, the outgoing president was James K. Polk. The incoming president is Zachary Taylor. And Zachary Taylor didn't want to take the oath of office on a Sunday because religion things. And he refuses. So he says, nope, not doing it. Going to have to wait till the next day. So what do we do for a full day? I mean, obviously the outgoing president's term legally ends at noon on inauguration day. And the vice president goes with him clearly. And there's no Congress because at that time they hadn't sworn in Congress. Yeah. There's no house of representatives because they all are reelected every two years. So what's a government to do? Well, luckily we have a line of succession. <laughs> <laughs> so the Senate, the next in line after the speaker is the Senate pro tem, who at that time was David Rice Atchison. And the story goes that he was our one day president of the United States. However, this is disputed. Uh, he himself said, no, I was never president of the United States. I never took any oath of office. I made no decisions. Like I, it wasn't me. Yeah. Are you president if you don't take, if you don't take the oath? I think not. Yeah. If you were, are you president if you don't like live in the White House and do any president things? I don't think so. <laughs> so basically what all that is, is to cover up is that we had another vacancy for 24 hours. 
I'll just, we should really do a podcast on David Wright Atchison because he was David Rice Atchison because he was a crazy person. He had the most insane political career. Mm -hmm. He had a lot of really bad, bad policy positions, but also some really progressive and weird ones. So someday we'll have to dig into him because he's a fascinating and odd figure. It takes place in D.C., except the first few. Not always. Not always, it's true. (laughs) Washington's, neither of George Washington's inaugurations took place in Washington. The first was in New York, where the Capitol then was. His second inauguration was in Philadelphia, as was John Adams' only inauguration. Single Single. (laughs) inauguration. So for those listening, as a little reminder, uh, Washington, D.C.'s established 1790 is the establishment of a federal district. 1789 is before that. So the, the government, the federal government is based in New York. And then as part of this plan to establish the nation's capital, the capital moves to Philadelphia for 10 years. It is not until Thomas Jefferson, our third president, that we have our first inauguration in the District of Columbia, what has been our nation's capital since. So um, actually three inaugurations take place before we have a single inauguration in the District of Columbia. They're mostly at the capital, not entirely, but mostly. For many years, they were on the east front of the capital. Sometimes when you inaugurate presidents in the winter, which January and March still are, it gets cold. So Taft's inauguration, his only inauguration, that he was sworn in as president, he swore in a couple of people as Supreme Court justice, but his his inauguration for as president in 1909 uh, was moved indoors because of a blizzard. Yuck. FDR was so ill that for his fourth inauguration in the midst of the war, and they blamed this on the war, but it really was because he was very ill uh, in 1945. He is going to get sworn in on the balcony of the White House. Obviously, Truman's swearing in was a few weeks later, also at the White House. Uh, And Ford, Gerald Ford is the sort of anomaly in all of this. He was not planned as president. Obviously, he becomes president when Nixon resigns, but Nixon didn't die. So there was a period of time to prepare for it. About 20, Nixon gave about 24 hours notice. So they actually were able to get the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court to the White House to swear in Ford in the White House. It's such a fascinating, I think, decision to have Ford sworn in in the White House because it isn't a great moment when an American president has to resign. It isn't a great moment when, you know, all this kind of distrust and lack of integrity and all this sort of loss of innocence, as it were, when it comes to trust in the American executive power. You don't want to have a big ceremony after that. It's not a raw, raw Mm -hmm. moment. It's not a, hey, guy, let's have a big thing at the Capitol. So to do it at the White House, it's really this sort of somber, serious thing. And then Gerald Ford gives his inaugural address, as it were, at the White House. And he says, our long national nightmare is over. So it's sort of a fascinating public relations moment of having it at the White House and sort of showing this, like, we're going to be stable despite the fact that we've now faced the first resignation and real tacit acknowledgement that not all presidents are people of integrity and honesty. Not that there hadn't been before Nixon, there certainly had been dishonest Yeah, but this is sort of the first time we've had to nationally acknowledge that. I also think it's such a great decision-making under pressure. Like they literally had a day to figure this out and they just did it. 
The president is, by the way, inaugurated at the Capitol, and this flummoxes people on my tours sometimes, so I like to draw attention to it. The reason that the ceremony takes place at the Capitol is the idea is that the president derives his power from the consent of the governed, of the people. And since the Capitol is the people's house, it takes place there. It also, the Capitol is deliberately larger than the White House and therefore makes for a much more dramatic visual. Uh, and so that is why the president is sworn in there as opposed to the president's mansion. So prior to Reagan, most of the time when the when the inauguration takes place at the Capitol, it had been on the east side, whether the east facade, the east portico, different things, depending on the time of the time in American history. But you get Ronald Reagan and Reagan, you know, he was an actor. He was a man who in his political career fully embraced media. He embraced visual. And he's kind of looking at the Capitol grounds. And if you've been on the east side of the Capitol, it's lovely. It faces the Supreme Court and Library of Congress, but it's sort of boxed in. There's not that much space. And you are sort of just surrounded by government buildings, especially by the time you get to the 1980s. And Reagan goes, I don't know. If you go over to the west side, it faces the National Mall. It faces the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. And there's all this open green space. And there's this dramatic facade. And he's like, I'm moving it to the west side of the Capitol. It's going to look more impressive. It's going to be bigger. It'll look bigger. And more people, the everyday American, can now come because there's more space. It expands all the way out two miles of open space. You don't have to have a ticket to be on the grounds to participate. So Reagan really brings that kind of Hollywood mentality and moves it to the west side of the Capitol. And that is where it has been since. I have also heard and I can't confirm this, but I've also heard that the re part of the reason Reagan gives for moving it is that he was the governor of a Western state. And wanted to face West. And wanted, yeah, he couldn't turn his back on the West. Oh, I like that. What I found in researching this episode was something I did not know, which is that Reagan has had both the warmest and the coldest inaugurations in American history. His first inauguration, which was 1981 January, it was 55 degrees. Which for DC, that is unseasonably warm for January. Very but much. as a tour guide who has brought groups to inauguration, I wish that were the norm. <laughs> and then his second inauguration, 1985, January, uh, it was seven degrees and in the negatives with the wind chill. And they actually moved it indoors. So this was another nice. similar to Taft and the blizzard. They kind of have to make a game day decision. And they're like, we can't possibly keep people out here. You know, these people in Congress and stuff, they're not young. Reagan's not young in his second inauguration. You can't put senior citizens out in zero degree weather. So Congress had to pass a last minute resolution on the day so that the rotunda could be used for Reagan's second inaugural. Look, I'm not a senior citizen, and I don't want to be out in seven degree weather. Like, let's but keep this, that very it, clear. It's fascinating to me that the same president in the 1980s, mm -hmm. coldest and warmest. I think that's... It's so weird. That is weird. That's very odd. And then they give a speech. Yay! Um, the speeches are the best part. The speeches are the best part. George Washington has the shortest speech, his second inaugural. 135 words, which is I basically... It. I know, I love it. He's to the point, he's like, hi, we're here again. Still president, still awesome. Let's drink things. That's about it. Like 135 words is like nothing, nothing. Basically, like I'm gonna just going to keep trying to do the best I can. Yeah. I'm here for you guys. I'm going to try it. It's going to be good. Other short ones, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's fourth, which again. Understandably. He's pretty ill. Also, he's done this three times already. Like 
He's been there. He's seen he's already stuff. had his big quotable moment. The only yeah. thing to fear is fear itself. You're not going to top that. Why no. even try? No, you're not going to top that ever. So why try? 50, 550 words. Lincoln second, which is one of the most amazing speeches in American history and should be read by everyone, but it's only 700 words. Which is why it's engraved at the Lincoln Memorial. Is it short enough to fit on the wall? Right, they could fit it, yeah. <laughs> um, we're going to talk next time. Our second half of this two part is going to be focusing on William Henry Harrison, but we'll just drop it in here to say that he has the longest inaugural address in presidential history. He's going to speak for an hour and a half. No, sorry, an hour and 45 minutes. An hour and 45 minutes. Trust me, I have stood out there. And even when someone's speaking for 45 minutes to an hour, when it's 30 degrees... No. It feels longer. Hour 45, that makes it 8,460 words. That is 10 times the length of Lincoln's second inaugural and then some. Here's the other thing that I feel like we don't fully appreciate in the 20th century. Now we have microphones and television and presidents project whether or not they are good speakers. They project. There's jumbotrons and things to help you hear and see. Right. Back then, you have to be close enough to be within earshot of the president's voice in order to hear it. Apparently, Jefferson's inauguration, he was apparently a soft-spoken guy, and so people couldn't hear him. So at William Henry Harrison's inauguration, if you're standing like several people deep in the crowd, you can't hear him. You're just standing there like, what the heck, for an hour and 45 minutes. So to give you an idea of how long that is, again, 8,460 words, the average speech across American history is about 2,400 words. And if you look at the 10 or 15 longest speeches, only a handful of them come from the last like 40, 50 years. Reagan, first inauguration, Obama's first inauguration, they get up into like the 3,000 word-ish, but 2,400 is the average. And you've got a lot of really short ones that sort of balance it. So to me, it's just so, I can't imagine what one person could have to say for that long. What did you have to say? You could stand up there and read something. For... Oh my God, that sounds terrible. And then Martin Van Buren, this is my, my new favorite little fun fact. He is given credit for having the first laugh line in an inaugurational speech, in an inauguration address. Um, and it was probably unintentional, but this was the first recorded time that we had an audience laugh during the inaugural address. Martin Van Buren said, unlike all those that preceded me, the American Revolution that gave us existence as one people was achieved at the period of my birth. And whilst I contemplate with grateful reverence that memorable event, now, he clearly means he is going to contemplate the reverence of the American Revolution, but the way it's phrased, if you're listening, makes it sound like he is grateful and reverent for his birth. And so people in the audience started laughing. And so there was like this outburst of chuckling. And so he had the first laugh line. And typically, inaugural addresses are very serious. Yes. So I love this idea that old blue whiskey van, who we have mentioned in previous episodes here and there, gave his, gave his crowd a chuckle. I love that. There are not a lot of funny lines in inaugural addresses. Typically not. They're very, they, even if they're optimistic uh, yes. and hopeful, they tend to be serious. Yes, very serious. So we all listen to a speech. And you, you're standing there and you're like, oh my gosh, I've been listening to the speech. But then next we get the parade. 
Well, the first thing that happens is they go inside and they swear on the vice president and there's usually a lunch and then the old president leaves. They actually land the the modern day, obviously they land the helicopter on the East lawn. The old president, you know, pieces out and they have a parade or at least modern day they do. George Washington, after his inauguration, had fireworks, but no parade. In fact, immediately after his inaugural address, he's going to go to church. Kind of boring. Thomas Jefferson just walks back to his boarding house and has lunch, which is, I love, sort of simple. Of course, when Thomas Jefferson's being sworn in in the District of Columbia, there's not really much else to do. No, that's true. There's only so many buildings here. We don't have a lot of the streets finished yet. Yes. So where would you even have your parade? <laughs> Andrew Jackson has the first parade, but it's kind of impromptu. There was basically a big party and he had encouraged a lot of people to come to Washington to see it. He was very populist and wanted people to see him. And so there's this basically impromptu parade as he heads back to the White House. Teddy Roosevelt for his Inauguration 1905, when he runs for election on his own, uh, he's going to have Geronimo at his parade, which is pretty boss, I think. Um, And like lots of flags. (laughs) Eisenhower's in 1953 is probably the biggest, they think. 73 bands, 59 floats, and three elephants. They have elephants. That's crazy. That's amazing. There's an Alaskan dog team and a turtle. The whole thing takes four and a half hours. And my favorite thing about Eisenhower's parade is he's in the reviewing stand because presidents um, in the modern era sit in a reviewing stand and they watch everything and they wave and they smile and you, you, you schmooze. And he's sitting there doing his thing. And there's like somewhere among these floats and bands and elephants, there are cowboys on horses and one cowboy gets out his lasso and he lassos Eisenhower, like gets the rope around him and like tugs at it which I don't think Secret Service would allow today. I was just going to say, I'm sure the Secret Service were like, fine with sure that. I'm pretty sure the reviewing stand now has like bulletproof whatever enclosing oh, yeah, them. Um, but that was not the case in Eisenhower's era. But he got lassoed, which is so amusing to me. I love that so much. Carter, for his inauguration, is going to surprise everyone in a couple of ways. First of all, he's going to wear business attire rather than formal wear. Like he shows up in a business suit, uh, which is so Carter. And delightful. He Reagan is going to bring back the formal wear in uh, 1981. Uh, four years later, Reagan is sworn in in like a formal coat and tails. And then for the parade, Carter decides to get out of the car, which did not thrill his Secret Service detail. And he's going to walk the whole parade route, which is from the Capitol to the White House. It's about a mile and a half. It's not like the shortest distance, particularly in January. And subsequent presidents have walked part of, but not all of, uh, the parade route. Usually they get in and out of the car at some point for, depending on their age. And again, I can imagine Secret Service has a few opinions on that. Yeah, they have to. (laughs) On them being out of the car. Oh, yeah, they have to wear, like, bulletproof vests and the whole thing. Like, it's a big deal. And then they have a big party. They have inaugural balls, which is everyone's favorite part. Dolly Madison has the first, it's a gala at a hotel in DC called Long's. Uh, They charge $4 a ticket, which I'm guessing was pretty dear in like the 1810s. That would have been, I think, a a pretty penny. Yeah. Jackson (laughs) has a big party at the White House. Do you want to take this Jackson one? I feel like this is right up your alley. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll probably do, we should really do a whole episode's that dig more and more into Jackson. But as you mentioned, you know, Jackson sort of has this impromptu 
sort of parade thing because so many people come to see him. He had invited so many people to the city and he decides he's going to do this meet and greet at the White House, essentially. And he's like, anybody can come. You don't have to be a politician. You know, anybody can come. So everybody did. They estimate that 20,000 people showed up to the White House. Now, the White House especially in Jackson's era where you don't have the West Wing and the East Wing and these additions is not humongous. It's not made for 20,000 people. And so people are just crowding in. They're wearing their muddy boots and they're rummaging through the rooms and they're taking dishes and crystal. And um, they, the White House staff later said that the carpet smelled for months after this. And people just won't leave. They're getting boisterous and rowdy and they're partying. So in an attempt to kind of get people out of the White House, they set up big tubs of juice and whiskey out on the lawn and they lured people out so that they could basically close it off. And Jackson was alleged to have been so overwhelmed by the crowd that he basically slipped out of a side door or window, depending on who's telling the story, and basically retreats from the White House and heads elsewhere uh, to be with a smaller group of people. So, you know, it, it's, again, almost like a, it's, it's a whole other era where you're like, 20,000 people just cramming in. Who cares? Security is meaningless. What I love about this, and the way I tell the story is, Jackson throws this big party at the White House and then he has to leave because he has to go to Capitol get sworn in. And he leaves these people partying. And as anyone who's been to a wedding knows, if you give people enough time and free alcohol, it gets real in a big hurry. And that's what happened. <laughs> I think it was just so well-intentioned of like, yeah, everybody can come by and say hi. And then it's like, mm-hmm. it's to me so, like the classic moment in a teen movie when you're like, I'm gonna have 10 people over and then like 200 show up. Yes. And it gets out of control real quick. Yes, and Jackson's like the parent that comes home. (laughs) A few inaugurations, Grant's, Zachary Taylor's, James Buchanan's, they build temporary buildings to house the inaugural balls. Uh, They used to use what is now Judiciary Square in the district. Three presidents have canceled theirs. Franklin Pierce is going to cancel his due to his son's death. Uh, Wilson, because Wilson's the worst, thought that they were too expensive and decides not to have one. I don't know. Maybe he's got a point there. (laughs) <laughs> they are, but it's not like he's paying for it himself. That's so true. And Harding, which surprised me actually when I found out about it, because Harding's a party guy, reference our episode in December. Uh, he wanted to set an example of simplicity. And so he's going to cancel his the, the um, big inaugural balls in 1921. And this sort of ends the tradition of official balls temporarily. Uh, private parties take over, especially during the Depression and the war. They don't want to be seen as um, sure. having these big ostentatious celebrations. Although I will note that during the Civil War, Lincoln has inaugural balls. In fact, he has a second inaugural ball uh, at his one now today, the National Portrait Gallery and Smithsonian American Art Museum, but was uh, the patent office. But it's sort of interesting during the Civil War, it's sort of this ex- expectation to keep doing these things. But by the time we get kind of to World War II, it's sort of like like it looks icky to be doing it. So I don't I don't blame Harding for saying let's just peel back a little bit. Yeah. Especially when you see how crazy it gets after the war. <laughs> so Truman has the first post-war in 1949. Uh, he reinstates the official inaugural balls. Four years later for Eisenhower in 1953, there are two inaugural balls and then four in 1957. Kennedy has five in 1961. And Carter says, no, we're not doing this. This is crazy town. So Carter ships them all down. He makes the price cheaper to get in. Uh, He's going to make it much less crazy. 
But, you know, then we go through Reagan and into the 90s and things get insane again. Uh, by 1997, we have the high of 14 inaugural balls. And these are official balls. These do not even include private parties and other things that are going on. Yeah. So eight in 2001, nine in 2005. In 2009, for Obama's first inauguration, there were 10 official balls and 121 unofficial balls. Look, if you've ever been to Washington, D.C., I don't even know where you can hold 121 events at the same time. There are not that many venues. (laughs) And they're a little like modern. An official ball is planned by the presidential inaugural committee, and the president's supposed to show up at them. They they don't, now that there's like 10 or 11 of them, the president doesn't show up to all of them, usually like three or four. And it's super kind of awkward. Like the president and the first lady do this. It's like a wedding. They do this dance uh, where they're kind of like awkwardly in the midst of everybody. And there's like a little smooching and it's very, seems to me to be very awkward. And to wit, three modern first ladies have worn white for their, for their husband's first inauguration. Nancy Reagan, Michelle Obama, and Melania Trump all wear white. So it's very like wedding-y and super awkward. Reagan apparently very much enjoyed this. Again, the Hollywood actor side of him. It's, it's, if you love being the center of attention, it's great fun. He has some sweet dance moves, evidently. He like, him and Nancy like busted a move. Bush too famously checked his watch. I remember this, you know, I'm from Texas. Uh, I remember very much watching the the inauguration and the balls. And like, that was like the moment on the news is Bush checking his watch while he's dancing with Laura. It's awkward. <laughs> um, and it seems like I've never been to an inaugural ball, particularly an official one, but they seem much less exciting than you'd think. Like it's super crowded. The first couple stay for like a dance and then they leave and it's hard to get food and drink. So it doesn't really seem like it's as cool as it's cracked up to be. And who even knows? I mean, by the time we listen to this, I'm going to assume that we probably won't see a lot of official or unofficial balls as part of the 2021 inauguration, given COVID restrictions in the District of Columbia. I super hope not. Plus, I don't know, it just seems weird to have people masked up at a party like that. I don't know. That seems really awful. So, yeah, that's the that's those are the inaugural balls. A couple oddities. Yeah, so uh, this is one I I always like to mention because everything in politics is old news. There is nothing new under the sun when it comes to politics. We think today about inaugurations and you you have all the former presidents there, right? You have the former presidents and the outgoing president, and it's all very congenial. We have the, the peaceful transfer of power. But let me tell you, very early on, John Adams, our second president, runs for a second term and loses to Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, this is so real early in our political system, real early in the government. And like the, the, the thing to do would have been to attend. And as Jefferson says in his, you know, inaugural addresses, we're all Federalists. We're all Republicans. Like we're all one country. But John Adams is like, not me. He skips his successor's ceremony. He's the first, but not the last to do so. Most notably for me is his son does the exact same thing. So a few years later, John Quincy Adams, one-term president. And when Andrew Jackson wins, John Quincy Adams is like, no, thank you. He is petty father, like petty son. He just beats a path back to Massachusetts. Uh, He is not going to sit there on the dais while Jackson gets sworn in. So um, by no means is it a requirement for the outgoing president to attend. And often it's kind of a nice photo op to have former presidents, but many former presidents due to health and aging and ability to travel have not always attended. So, you know, it's not an expectation or a requirement. So I always find it sort of fascinating, but we typically in the modern era expect the outgoing president to be there. 
And there's a tradition that like the new president shows up at the White House before the ceremony and greets the outgoing president. And sometimes it's been very warm, like Reagan and Bush one were very warm. They'd served together as president, vice president for eight years at that point. And so it was very chummy. Uh, sometimes it's not. It's very frosty, like FDR and Hoover ride in a car together to go to the Capitol for FDR's first inauguration. And there's a very famous photo of Hoover looking pissed and FDR is like, yeah, this is amazing. I'm the man. <laughs> the only other, I will say, the only other president who skips his successor's inauguration is Andrew Johnson, which is not too mm. surprising. Johnson uh, will become the first vice president to become president due to an assassination. He's a wildly unpopular president. He's the first president to be impeached by the House of Representatives. And he is then whooped by uh, Ulysses S. Grant, or I should say Johnson doesn't run again. Johnson doesn't run again because he's impeached, but yeah. the man who is elected is Grant by an overwhelming margin. Grant and Johnson are nemesis. They do not like each other. Johnson is really upset to see Grant as an ex-president. And so he's just like, forget it. I'll stay at the White House and sign legislation and then I will leave, <laughs> which is kind of great. Yeah, I like it. And there've always been crowds. Lincoln's crowds were so rowdy, the police had to be called. Yeah, it got so bad at the Capitol. Um, and there had already been, Lincoln had come to Washington, D.C. prior to his first inauguration under the threat of attack. Um, they had to basically smuggle him in in the middle of the night. There had been threats made on Lincoln's life well before he was ever sworn in. Uh, and so there are raucous crowds at his inauguration, some excited and some not fans. And so police are called because there's sort of a fear that it's going to get too dangerous. So um, if you have ever attended an inauguration or seen on TV, you'll see a lot of security and it's understandable why. It's an exciting moment and there are just a lot of people, but yeah. it also any election of any president uh, often comes with some sort of political blowback or fallout. Um, and Lincoln was no exception to that. So I sort of uh, always think about that too, as you know, Lincoln enters the presidency on the precipice of the civil war. And even at his own inauguration, yeah. things are not peaceful. Right. Right. And then um, just in the ways in which inaugurations are documented, I found this really interesting. Polk's inauguration was the very first to have any sort of newspaper illustration of the event. So that's a pretty long time when you think about it. That's a lot of inaugurations that are written about but not drawn in any way. And it wasn't even an American newspaper that had the illustration. It was a newspaper in London. And that's the first time that anyone's found a newspaper, the first illustration of an inauguration which I found very interesting. Uh, Buchanan's was the very first to be photographed officially. So Buchanan just before Lincoln. McKinley's was the first to be recorded on film. So getting us into the 20th century. Coolidge's was the first to be broadcast on the radio. And then Harry Truman was the first to be televised. Clinton's was the first to be streamed on the internet. Oh. So if you want to feel ancient, yeah. I very much remember Clinton's uh, inaugur first inauguration, and it was the first one streamed on the internet. The Clinton uh, White House is also the first White House to have a web page. That, I did, that yeah. I did know. That I did know. So children, back in the old days. Back in the old days, we had <laughs> you, you didn't have these things streamed. <laughs> so that's 
that's presidential inaugurations. I think that's a good a good overview, a good little bit of trivia. Uh, again, we're recording this before the the next inauguration, so we we can't say what it will be, but I think it will be historic. This is a very unique moment in American history with a pandemic, with a contentious election, with so much happening. Um, it won't be like other with a woman getting sworn in for the first time. Yeah, we're going to have our first female vice president being sworn in. Uh, this is a very, a, a unique time. We'll have our oldest president. Uh, Joe, Joe Biden will be the oldest president to be sworn in in American history. Um, so it's interesting. It's a really, I'm really excited to see how it's different. And I think some of the changes they make, maybe utilizing more technology, might set a precedent for future inaugurations. So much of our inauguration traditions lag behind the technology that we have. So I'm, I'm excited as much as I'm also like, not, not going to go stand in the cold and watch it. (laughs) No, no, no offense to any president. I've done my time attending. Nope. I, yeah. I tell people that on tour, people are still going to inauguration. (laughs) No, even presidents I like, nope, too cold, too crowded. No, thanks. Um, And so that's inaugurations next week. We're going to do the second half of our two-parter. We're going to sort of drill down on, um, the election of 1840, William Henry Harrison, our shortest tenured president, and why inauguration plays a role in the shortness of his tenure. Um, so that'll be fun times. So come back for that. <laughs> Excellent. Well, as always, we want to thank you so much for listening and supporting Tour Guy Tell All. It's 2021. This is a new year for the podcast. Our plan is to continue to bring you just fun, interesting episodes through the spring. It's possible we may take another little break as we enter into summer, but we plan to continue to just bring you great episodes. Uh, we want to thank you so much, as always, for being supporters and patrons. We love our patrons the most. In fact, if you're a patron, you're probably listening to this episode before it launches to everybody else. Um, If you're not a patron, you can get early access. Um, You can support us on Patreon for as little as $3 a month. That money goes directly to our guides and just helps us keep going during this time. Uh, You also can support the pod by following us on social media at Tour Guide Tell All on all the uh, social media channels except Twitter where we're at Tour Guide Tell. Um, You can also pitch the pod. We'd love to hear your suggestions as we're planning out our 2021 calendar of what you want us to talk about, uh, what you're curious about, what questions you have, we're here for you. And you can always email us at tourguidetellall at gmail.com. I will mention that our shop will be on a little hiatus. So we usually sell Tour Guide Tell All gear. Our shop will be closed January and February. So we're going to take a little break, but if there's any merch or gear you'd like, if you want us to have more shirts, more mugs, more whatever, let us know. Um, We'll reopen the shop in the spring, but we'd love to get your input on what you want to see. Yes. And thank you so very much for joining us for a little trip around inaugurations. And um, we've got a bunch of exciting episodes planned for Black History Month in February and Women's History Month in March. And it's going to be really great. And thank you guys again. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye, guys. I'm your host, Candon Arseniega. Dan King and I do the intros, the editing, the admin, Becca Grawl and Rebecca Fackner do the research and the talking. We are all guides for free tours by foot in Washington, D.C. This is Tour Guide Tell All. Until next time. Bye.